Welcome to our Climate and Sustainability Trailblazers podcast with me, Emily Faramond. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by a number of the Investor Leadership Network, or ILN members, to talk about the topic of transition taxonomies. For anyone who's not aware of the ILN, they're a group of 14 open and collaborative asset managers and owners interested in addressing both sustainability challenges whilst considering the importance of long-term growth. So without further ado, I'm delighted to be joined by Annika Brower from 91 and Astrid Hogstead from Nordea. Thank you both for joining us. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Emily. So under the ILN banner, you've just published your most recent white paper titled Transition and the Enabling Role of Taxonomies and Frameworks. And we wanted to spend a little bit of time today exploring with you both the importance of transition frameworks. And if I could come to you first, Annika, I'd be really, really interested to hear your opinion around the role asset owners and managers have to play in decarbonisation and why this is important. So I think when you think about the two most critical levers for change, if we're talking about climate change or any sort of change um, in the global economy, The first is robust policy, so strong um, policies, laws, um, and and the institutions that surround those. And then the second lever for change that needs to sort of turn those policies into action is is finance. Um, Asset owners and asset managers have some of the biggest pools of capital in the world. And so I think when we're talking about um, the role that asset owners and asset managers play, you have to think about the quantum of capital that those institutions represent and how that capital needs to shift into, one, climate solutions, and two, effectively um, investing to decarbonize the problem, which is what we call transition finance. If you think about in that context, asset owners and asset managers have an enormous role to play in driving the world towards um, a cleaner, greener future. Uh, I think the two key ways in which they do that is by sort of decisive allocation into solutions. And by solutions, we're talking about renewable energy, battery storage, new innovation and technology, efficiency measures. It's a sort of asset classes of types of companies and, and technologies that are really classified as green, if you will. And then the second sort of area where asset owners and asset managers can play where they can be really um, meaningful is in driving down the problem, which is effectively uh, taking high emitting companies and shifting them towards a lower carbon future. But what do they need to be able to do that? That that second bucket is so critical. They need information. How you know they need to know what the companies are doing. So disclosure of of emissions. They need information from industry in order to understand what those companies need to be doing more of or less of to be better. Asset owners and asset managers need to have integrity in what they're doing. So, you know, we have to have a very strong understanding of our role, our responsibility, our fiduciary responsibility, and really sort of stick to our guns when when we're talking about decarbonizing top emitters or or high emitting companies. And then the third part, and, and I won't go into detail of this, but really being able to do that, being able to decarbonize and transition um, high emitting companies, you have to be able to interrogate them. You have to be able to interrogate 
transition plans of companies, understand what companies can and cannot do, um, and then invest in line with those plans. Wow, you've certainly set the context nicely there, Annika, and covered a lot of ground. Astrid, anything that you wanted to add? What I would like to reflect on here is that I think this really is a question that we also need to ask ourselves as individual asset managers and asset owners. So I come from 10 years in the impact space uh, before I joined Nadea Asset Management. And there we really use the term almost too much, which is theory of change. And really, you know, what that is, is that we all needed to have a very clear understanding of what it was that we were doing that would drive an outcome. And I think that uh, this is a term that we should do more to adopt uh, within financial institutions as well. At least the, the idea of it, which is to say that, you know, we are, we are very different as asset managers and asset owners. At Nordea, we're active asset managers. You know, we, we invest primarily in, in listed equity, corporate bonds, sovereign debt and covered bonds. We don't have a lot of private equity. Uh, so that changes what our role is uh, uh, to decarbonize the wider system. I think we need to be quite clear just on, on, on communicating a little bit more firmly maybe as well what levers that we as an institution believe that we can pull and also what kind of, you can say, risk we are prepared to take in association with that. You can sometimes say that if the world was on track to decarbonize, we could just do business as usual. So basically, all of us making net zero commitments and so forth would be kind of trivial because we could just do whatever we've always done and the world would be on track. But in a similar vein, if we have a world that is completely off track and is not looking to decarbonize at all, then the question is really to us, how much are we willing to let our investment universe deviate from the broader investment universe? You know, what role and risk are we willing to take there in this space? So. So it's just to say that it really is, I think, the fundamental question that we should ask ourselves. Thanks, Astrid. And that's that's led me really nicely on to the next question, actually, around how are you holding yourselves and the companies that you're working with and investing in to account around tracking their actual decarbonisation against the targets that they've set? Yeah, so uh, I think the answer there really is is twofold. One is that you know over the last few years we're all reporting our finance emissions that are the emissions associated with uh, the companies that we are invested in and we can see that develop over time i mean we can also use a different metric which is wacky the weighted average carbon intensity that most of us are also tracking and i think most of us will say that it has kind of trended downward we will see some reductions in those metrics back from 2019 and onwards but then really the question is you know what's behind those emission reductions to what extent is that because we have changed our portfolio to what extent is that simply changes to market circumstances you know we had a covid year we had a boom year um, to what extent is this then really also to do with actual emission reductions that are happening within our portfolio composition and so for that we run attributional analysis which basically means that we we try to identify the specific levers that are behind any figure that we have when it comes to whether or not our portfolios are decarbonizing or not. But that, that's one aspect. 
And the second one, in terms of holding ourselves and, and portfolio companies to account, really, then is is really related to what we think those portfolio companies are going to do in the future, right? Because that's what really matters to us. You know, the past is the past, but we're investing because of what we believe companies will do going forward. And so one area of work that we have really focused on back in 2023 is to project companies' emissions going forward. And that sounds quite maybe like a quite simple task, but really it isn't, right? Because a number of parameters go into figuring out what we believe to be the most credible pathway that a company is on. And for that, we use a range of different metrics that feed into this model. And, and I think we will maybe get to talking about some of these as well. But these are really uh, metrics that we can engage companies on, right? So so if we if companies have validated their targets via a science-based target initiative, we know we, we give that more credibility, but that's also something we can engage a company on and we can hold them accountable for, for if they say they will have done it and they haven't and so forth. So we're trying to, to basically tie this all together, meaning that we will have the ability to assess companies in our broad universe on a range of different climate-related metrics we can feed that into an understanding or in a, a belief on where the company is going. And we can also translate that into engagement objectives that we can use for our dialogues with companies. Fantastic. Well, thank you for sharing and outlining the approach that you're using at Nordea. I wonder if we could come to you, Annika, and just to talk a little bit more about 91. I know across the, the ILN members, there are many different approaches used to, to kind of uh, work through and track actual decarbonisation against targets. So so over to you. Yeah, I think a lot of what Astrid said resonates with me personally, but also how 91 view, I guess, the sort of strategy of tracking. I think what you said, Astrid, about um, theory of change is so true, specifically when you're looking at um, the different in the different financial mechanisms. So debt versus equity, those are two different types of um, financial tools that require two different um, approaches effectively. I think the first thing, and I, I mentioned this up front about sort of integrity, you know, as a firm, you have to have integrity in the targets that you set. And by integrity, I mean, we have to set targets that one, we can achieve, but definitely that have ambition baked into them. And we have to hold ourselves to account on that. And I think everyone's kind of doing that in a slightly different way. We have set a net zero target. It's about working with the top highest emitting companies in our portfolio. We do not believe in divestment or exclusion. Whether we have debt or equity in those companies would determine how we effectively would track the companies, not how we would track the companies, but how we would effectively engage the companies and hold them to account. So debt we see as more of a pull, a pull factor. You can bake conditionality into debt. Equity is more of a push because you have a voice and you have a vote. And so I think a key part of our strategy is that information piece. We need to have the information, um, publicly available information from companies and we engage companies on the information around their transition plans. So we've developed an in-house tool called the Transition Plan Assessment Framework. 
Um, I think it's been featured in one of the ILN white papers, but it's effectively uh, 36 indicators that we track on all of our top emitting companies, covering everything from disclosure to target setting to implementation of targets and plan, how a plan is being financed, the governance structure, etc., uh, the reason why we look at all these indicators is because we believe that we have to look beyond just scope one, two and three targets and scope one, two and three reduction. We need to look at how that plan is being financed. We need to look at the social and justice elements of the plan. Are people being included? That is very, very important in a country like South Africa or other emerging market countries where the transition is going to be at the peril of many communities. and so. We develop that to help us have that integrity and, and derive that information. And then all asset managers, biggest tool on the equity side is, of course, engagement. So we engage companies in line with the output of that assessment. We hold them to account on the targets that they set. In a case-by-case basis, we will vote for or against management for or against climate and transition plans based on what we believe to be achievable and what we believe to have integrity within each company. Brilliant. Thank you for that, Annika. And just to then dive a little bit deeper into the specifics of transition finance frameworks. So we've seen a proliferation of industry standards and frameworks specifically around transition finance and helping you to inform the credibility of transition plans. What advice would you offer to those struggling to navigate this proliferation? I wish I was starting this journey now and I didn't have to wade through the many frameworks that I had to wade through in the last sort of two and a bit years. But in many ways, I think having started this journey earlier than many others you learn quickly what works for you and what doesn't work for you. The ILN white paper, I think, has a really good summary of a lot of what is useful to many asset owners and asset managers who are looking for similar outcomes that we are looking for. So you can look through resources like the white paper. There's also a transition transition finance guidance that has a sort of long list of all the different types of taxonomies and guidelines available in the market. I don't necessarily think that provides clarity on what would be useful for each individual asset manager and asset owner. I think what it does, it lays out the landscape of what's available. I always think the best thing you can do is start with your endpoint in mind. What do you want to achieve? Do you want a green portfolio? Do you want real world decarbonization? Are you an EM, DM or both? Because every one of those answers will determine a different strategy and different use case for the range of taxonomies and and tools that exist. And I know that doesn't answer your question, Emily, but I think the, the sort of overarching message is that you should be clear on the strategy and what you want to achieve before you go down this route. We've had to ask ourselves the question many times, are we wanting to simply maintain or are we wanting to invest for decarbonization? And not many asset owners and asset managers want to change their portfolios or develop new strategies or tilt their existing portfolios an asset manager or asset owner needs to ask themselves those questions. Are they willing to really go the extra mile effectively? So I think what I heard from you there, please let me know if if this is correct, is make sure you're clear on the strategy, 
start with the end in mind and then engage with the frameworks and and you're going to have to kind of roll around in them and just work through what works Trial for your error. business yeah absolutely great thank you astrid anything else from you in terms of advice you'd give to others around navigating the transition finance framework landscape yeah i just wholeheartedly agree that uh, that we need to work backwards from from the end in mind I think the challenge, at least that we have faced, is that there are multiple possible ends to work backwards from, especially if you ask across the organization. What we have found uh, is that we both have specific portfolios that are focused on delivering decarbonization via engagement. We also have a range of portfolios that are more interested, you could say, in the kind of risk aspect to make sure that they're mitigating against climate risk. And then we have an kind of entity, organizational wide incentive to make sure that we can do you know, broad diagnostics across all of our portfolios uh, that can also inform our engagement strategy. The thing that has helped us in the end has been the large amount of work to identify the specific data points across you know, the, the wide data landscape that we believe that we need to have in our centralized system that we can then use as building blocks to develop a whole bunch of different tools and frameworks on top of. And that database pulling from science-based targets, Transition Pathway Initiative, Climate Action 100, CDP, and other providers that are delivering different types of proprietary information can be packaged and repackaged in different ways. But only if you have them in there and you have a way of maintaining them consistently as well. So I guess my advice would just be to say, I would really just concur with Annika that the starting point is to really map out the most important use case organizationally that we have for this type of data and these type of assessments. And then try to work backwards from that in terms of what is that we need centralized. And I guess you can kind of say tailored solutions that might work for individual portfolios that at least have been our experience. Now we have all this data, we are also finding new use cases. We're like, oh, we could actually be doing this or we could be using this data point over here, which is of course useful. But at the same time, you might have ended up with a slightly different uh, result if we had started, you know, uh, with a clearer understanding exactly of, of our all of our key use cases. Yeah. And and it sounds like, Astrid, what you're advocating for there is the use of a smorgasbord of transition finance frameworks, not having quite a narrow view that you're going to select one and use that consistently. It, I, would, I would say that what I'm advocating for really is to understand the raw data that you want to make informed decisions on. Because that's what we need. We need to identify the actual underlying data that we want in our systems, and then we can package into different frameworks. But we need the data first, right? We need the actual data that uh, that is the basis for everything. We can really, you know, spend a lot of resources on one specific provider, or we can spend a lot of resources drawing from different providers, and then you'll have to find a way of consolidating that, prioritizing it, and so forth. So there's a lot of management simply when it comes to the data inputs that we need. But really, it's just to say that that is really at the core of everything. We don't just want to buy from our providers something that says that a company has an implied temperature rise of 2.1 degrees. 
because we can't really use that for anything, right? We need to understand the underlying data. We understand their targets, their current emissions, additional information more qualitatively in terms of their strategic plan and so forth. But that's all data. In the end, it's all data that we need in our systems. And the big piece of work then is just to build up that data in-house. Fantastic. Thank you for clarifying that, Astrid. Something that's, I think, a topic of much debate in the industry is around whether financing the transition actually supports with alpha generation. And just be keen to hear both of your perspectives about how investment in transition finance and utilising transition taxonomies can support with that alpha generation. Astrid, if you wanted to kick us off. My hope is that the long arc of history will bend towards decarbonisation. Let's say it like that. We definitely have an understanding, I think, or, or an anticipation uh, on, on our side that there are some untapped opportunities to explore. Uh, and really that has to do with trying to identify those companies that may, you know, not yet be, you know, kind of clear transition stories, but we believe that they can be. And particularly those will be companies where we know that what they are delivering is something that there's going to be a lot of useful also in a transitioned world, right? So we know we need steel. We know we need cement. We know we need chemicals of different natures, but we just want to try to, so we don't want to shy away basically is what I'm saying from companies or sectors, but we want to try to identify the pills within them, you can say. And then whether or not that generates alpha over time, yeah, we would certainly hope so. I absolutely agree with Astrid. We have identified over the last two years that companies that have robust transition plans are more future-proofed physical and transition risk associated with climate change than those without. And that transition plan may be in various stages of maturity. You know, some companies have 168-page reports on their transition plan with five years of data behind them. And Others are just setting targets and figuring out the financing and figuring out what their company looks like in 2035. But as an investor, as a shareholder, the confidence that you get from having that company in your portfolio and that company being one that is looking at the future and thinking about the risk of a changing world to the value of that company is more valuable in the long term than one that doesn't. And so I think you have to see value in alpha generation, but there's also, will this company have a place in a 2035 or 2050 world? Is the product something that we need? As Astrid said, you can't shy away from steel, cement, agricultural inputs. These are all high emitting, high polluting industries today that have no choice other than to be low-emitting, low-polluting industries tomorrow. And we need to be backing the companies that see themselves as those low-carbon pioneers. And that's where the alpha generation ultimately will come in. In COP28, we, we launched a strategy called the Emerging Market Transition Debt Strategy. And effectively, the whole strategy is designed around identifying companies in emerging markets that require debt financing and debt capital to scale up their decarbonization plans. That is a commercial strategy. We believe that that strategy will generate alpha in line with our clients' 
in line with our fiduciary duty and in line with what our clients' needs will be. I think that when you start seeing those bright spots, I'm talking about emerging markets specifically, but it, that, that the same can be said for developed markets. Those bright spots are the companies that are looking at climate change as both a risk and an opportunity. And that's where effectively the alpha generation will start, that that flywheel will start spinning, we hope. Very good. And it sounds like you're making a bet that that will start to to flow through into alpha generation. I guess a, a further question for you then is, what are you thinking of in terms of timescales of when you're expecting to see that? That's also very market dependent because these are both public and private companies that we're talking about. The short-term market fluctuations make it very, very difficult to, to predict, specifically when you're looking at decarbonization. We've seen green investments fluctuate hugely over the last three years. Who knows what that's going to look like over the next three years? But in the long-term game, and, and you know, we play a very long-term game when you're talking about pension funds, when you're talking about sovereign wealth funds, they're investing for the long-term. And so we're looking at, at long-term investment horizons. Yeah, understood. And I think as we start to see increasingly short-term impacts of climate change and changing weather patterns, that can only, I guess, be a more medium-term outcome in all likelihood as those risks start to become realised, unfortunately. Thank you to Annika and Astrid. We're really grateful you've taken the time out of busy and important roles to share your perspectives. Personally, I've really enjoyed our conversation and I'm sure our listeners will too. I'm sorry to say we've run out of time today, but it's been an immense pleasure having you on the podcast. It's been really insightful and I'm sure will resonate. Now, if you enjoyed the podcast, please do like and share and also look out for further instalments of the Climate and Sustainability Trailblazers. We've got some really exciting guests in the pipeline who will bring their unique perspectives on the markets they work in. And if you have any feedback, please do let us know. Thank you. Thank you.